The stories of the past are the drivers of the future. To know these stories is to be prepared for the future. Gloria Emanuel. Welcome to Warfare Advancement Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed our kind of um, slight detour uh, for October and enjoyed the, um, I guess, the sci-fi fantasy kind of specials uh, that I did to kind of give myself a little bit of time to do some extra research and get some outlines for these upcoming episodes together. Uh, But we're going to get back into the actual history uh, here tonight and uh, going forward, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, So, uh, when last we left off in the main episode, uh, we were kind of summarizing the state of the world at 10,000 BC, kind of right around the time that the Younger Dryas was ending and most of water levels are similar to what they are today, uh, and just general geography kind of being what it is. Although, of course, there are still climatic events going on. Uh, There are adjustments still being made from, I guess, the new normal, as it were, after um, the end of the last, um, you know, Ice Age and us getting to the Holocene period. Uh, So, um, we did also do a couple of episodes just about domestication for plants and animals that has been going on. you know, right around that 10,000 BC time frame. I didn't go into too much detail during the actual kind of layout of the episodes, uh, but that is happening and has happened up to what is now our focus for 8,000 BCE. So yeah, we're jumping forward to around 8,000 and we will cover developments to around probably around 6,000 BCE or so. So it's a two year, 2,000 year window give or take. Um, I will also be jumping jumping back a bit uh, to the kind of the interim period between our last time frame and this one to go over anything I missed or developed in the interim. I may also go over or reestablish some points I've made uh, in those earlier episodes. I may also correct myself. Uh, again, my specialty isn't archaeology, um, but it history, and I know that I may have made some mistakes So I might contradict myself, and if you notice any of those, please tell me so I can clarify or correct myself as needed. Um, But with all that out of the way, let's get into the episode. So, we're back in Africa, where it all started. Um, uh, We'll start again with the oldest and most isolated peoples first. Uh, This, of course, is the San and the Khoi peoples. Um, the San are inhabiting most of the south of the continent, while the Khoi are occupying the east, south of the Horn of Africa, and central Africa, east and south of the Congo River Basin and rainforest, and of course, probably throughout most of the Great Rift Valley. Um, and they, they may still have some small levels of interaction with each other and other groups on their borders, but due to the population density it is not enough to leave a significant DNA or artifact evidence so um, make you know, it may have happened but if it did it wasn't very regularly 
Um, now, the relative isolation for these people isn't a bad thing. Um, they're in a part of the world that was relatively unaffected by the Younger Dryas climate event, or uh, the effects were, you know, beneficial to their way of life. Um, they were living in fantastic environments for a hunter-gathering lifestyle. So that is kind of to say that they were not faced with any new kinds of hardships or radical changes that groups in other parts of Africa and the world were dealing with. Uh, but that is not to say that they didn't grow or experiment, though. Um, we see an increase of rock art that can be dated to this time. Uh, that suggests that they were developing their kind of cultural and religious life. Um, it's maybe in this time frame when the San Sia firm kind of establishment of Kang or Kagan and his role as kind of the trickster creator. Or maybe this is the time frame that established that he had indeed left the world of man and the lesser spirits and deities. Uh, perhaps this is the period that sees an increase in koi groups, which will eventually lead to you know, regional differences of their chief god um, in which domain he had mastery over. Um, we also see an increase of microlithic tools among both, uh, both groups um, or among the tribes of these groups. Um, they still use larger scrapers, hand axes, etc., but they do start to make smaller and more specialized bladelets. Um, as an example of this, there is the Buran industry in Kenya. Um, the tools from that location at this time include um, pieces made of obsidian, which of course can be fragile, but are also able to be made extremely sharp. Um, so these these groups of peoples are basically living in the apex of hunter-gatherer society. Uh, and they retain, you know, their relative isolation from each other and outside groups for a bit longer from this time frame. Um, now this is probably a good time to go into some specifics about hunter-gatherers I haven't really touched on too, too much. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, first, it's still mostly guesswork um, due to the nature of their tools and cultural artifacts we can only pull so much information about any of these ancient groups um, and I think it's always safe to assume that people have a level of technology higher than what their artifacts suggest um, within reason uh, again I, I think you've, you know, if you find a fair number of artifacts and they're made of stone and wood and bone, uh, it's pretty safe to say that they didn't have plastic that has since by, you know, been broken down or degraded. Um, it's also important to remember that while there's probably cultural overlap between groups that use the same tools or techniques to create tools, it is not always the case that they share much else in common. Um, I can't speak or read Japanese, but I can use a Nintendo Switch to play Mario Galaxy. Um, and, you know, Japanese can speak and read Japanese, and they can also do, <laughs> they can also play a Nintendo Switch as well. Uh, just kind of think of something like that. So, uh, we should be measured in any kind of assumptions we need to make. Uh, secondly, I 
didn't really have anything to drastically contrast the hunter-gatherer lifestyle with. Um, but with pastoralism and sedentary societies beginning to emerge, I feel like now is a good time to put forward what differences um, we likely could have seen you know, in various groups, region by region. Um, so we'll go ahead and start with the sand. Um, sand tribes are, uh, and probably still were in the past, very egalitarian groups. Um, this is made very easy, or easier, I should say, due to their small group sizes and them all being, you know, cl fairly closely related to one another. Um, when describing their extended family, uh, they don't make a distinction between their mother or father's side of the family. They just call both parents siblings, aunt or uncle, and any and all offsprings of those aunts and uncles or cousins. Um, this is something, you know, you see in, well, I think it, pretty much every European society does this. Um, I think anthropologically that's like Inuit kinship uh, is similar. And then, of course, here's just your grandmother, grandfather. There's not a separate word for paternal or maternal grandfather or, you know, things like that. Um <clears throat> Now, I saw a couple of places online that mentioned that sand groups don't have very many personal names. They only have around 30 to 35 per sex. Um, but I couldn't really get a solid source on that. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. But I do think that that would make sense given, one, their isolation and their smaller group sizes. Um, so individuals are never given their parents' names. They're usually given a grandparent or maybe an aunt, an uncle's name, you know, depending on, you know, what the sex of the child is and, you know, whatever the same-sex relative is. Um, so that means that they could lead to cousins sharing names, and their solution to that is that when they live together, um, the older person with the name gets to decide what the younger is referred to. Um, I watched a documentary about a Kung woman, uh, which is a San group, uh, who her name was Nye, um, but her family kind of called her um, Short Face, Nye Short Face, or Little Squirrel, um, kind of depending on, you know, I guess if they were feeling more um, playful or just, you know, more um, teasing. Um, so there's a fairly high level of uh, female and male equality. Um, women can be leaders of groups the same as men. Uh, most decisions, though, are made by kind of a group of, uh, by a group's elders. Um, there are cases of hereditary chiefs, uh, males, um, but it is probably better to think of them as being kind of like a first among equals. Um, they do not have any kind of supreme power or even, you know, power to compel or command outside of, like, very specific situations, maybe in a fight or on a hunt, something like that. Um, though it is possible that this formal concept of a chief didn't come about until after, you know, they encountered tribal societies with a more complex social or political organization or maybe, you know... Um, agriculturalist or pastoralist 
Um, we can't really be sure. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Um, their couples are allowed to divorce provided there are valid reasons. Uh, typically, though, you know, their groups that they live in provide like marriage counseling uh, to try and prevent this. Um, it's not something that they can just do immediately. Um, if both parties at least attempt to resolve their issues, um, you know, you know, as long as they, you know, they try at least to an extent, um, you know, divorce is allowed with very little social stigma. Um, decisions to have children are decided by both mother and father. Uh, families are small due to a couple of factors. Um, and this following, these following statistics are true of all hunter-gatherers, and the numbers I'm about to give kind of are estimates drawn from a norm, number of sources. Um, one, start, studies of modern hunter-gatherers. Archaeological evidence is another. Um, you know, things like that. So, uh, the reason for the small family sizes for hunter-gatherers are uh, one, Infant uh, just a high infant mortality rate. Um, giving birth is dangerous to women and the infant. And then, you know, even if an infant is bored, the likelihood of it living to be a year old was probably somewhere around, you know, 25-30%. And for any of those children that made it to that point, they had about a 50-50 you know, shot to reach puberty. Um, another issue is nutrition. Um, women in these types of societies have a very healthy diet. It's very varied. You know, they get a lot of different um, vitamins, nutrients, that kind of stuff. But uh, that is only the case when food is plentiful. But in times when food is harder to come by, uh, you know, you know, either because of uh, the season or because of just Maybe they overstayed in an area too long and they've kind of depleted the food source. In situations like that, they can have very irregular periods and that can also be exacerbated by the amount of exercise that they get during migrations and just from performing, you know, the work of living um, that they have to undertake to survive. Um, I've read a few sources, among them James C. Scott's Against the Grain, um, that he estimates that hunter-gatherer women reach sexual maturity later and ovulated less frequently. Um, so another factor contributing, you know, to this ties back into movement. Um, when you're moving regularly, you have to have a certain level of freedom to, to do that. So if you have too many infants or pregnant women, it may not be possible to move. Um, so this gives you a limited window on when you could conceive and give birth and safely be able to move. Uh, so typically this sees successful families waiting around two to four years before even starting to have another child. Um, if something, you know, could, and if something caused a shift in food availability or security for a region, that made you have to move out of season or, you know, way earlier than expected. This could lead to, you know, a very tragic and real outcome that human groups all over the world had to endure and deal with. And that is 
um, deliberate infanticide or just abandonment. Uh, so the possibility, you know, of that happening was definitely another factor that had to give people, you know, pause, you know, when thinking of having children. But now to get back to the San specifically, um, you know, kind of their family dynamics. Men can have multiple wives, though um, this is very rare, and he has to be kind of an excellent hunter to, you know, provide enough meat uh, for them and their children. Uh, and I think, I think it's, they've, they said that it's usually only two wives. I didn't see any examples of uh, a man having more than that. And then, you know, even historically, I, I didn't see less, um, you know, legends or, you know, stories or anything along those lines. Um, uh, now, he may have married more than one or more than two women, but it would be very rare that this would happen at a time. So, you know, maybe one wife died and then um, he married a third at that point or, you know, he, maybe he divorced one wife, you know, something, just any of those possibilities. Uh, excuse me sorry Um, now um, this leads to another factor that uh, sound groups in general deal with Um, that is their division of labor Um, women tend to be the primary food provider Uh, they are the gatherers of the hunting gathering groups Um, um, and at least in modern studies, uh, they provided around 70% of a group's calories. Um, men spend their time, you know, hunting animals for meat and byproducts. Um, so a man's kills are always um, insulted by his fellows to kind of just put, uh, put down and uh, prevent him from getting kind of a big head and overestimating his importance. Um, now, in some groups, uh, women can hunt, but from what I understood of what they said about it, that this is very rare and only happens under um, odd situations. Like um, it could be like a due to a lack of males, or just due to perhaps uh, maybe uh, spiritual religious reasons. Maybe that there it requires females to come with them to hunt a specific kind of animal, just something, something odd, just something out of the ordinary. Um, but, uh, food is split between everyone evenly in a group and it can even be shared between, you know, different bands. Um, they're generally related. They're all part of the same, I guess, tribe you might refer to it as, you know, they all speak the same language. They're probably distantly related. Um, so if, you know, if they know that food in an area has been harder to come by, you know, they're at least going to share it with their relatives. Um, Children do not work, though, um, from what I understand. Uh, Though I can imagine that parts of their play involves them pretending to be hunters or, you know, learning what is good or not to eat, you know, from watching, you know, their mothers, um, you know, do work and them kind of um, just kind of relaxing and watching them. Um, Another important factor for uh, San, um, when we talked about their religion uh, all those episodes ago, um, we talked about how the Elan antelope in their religious stories and how it is kind of the favorite animal 
of their god, uh, Kagan. There is some der uh, der derivation between the various tribes of the sand, but all tend to use the animal in uh, three specific rituals um, that made their way to kind of the modern day. Um, a boy becomes a man when he kills a large antelope, and you know, the Alond are the most sought after for this kind of rite of passage. Um, once caught, um, the Alon is skinned, and the fat from the animal's throat and collarbone is made into a broth, which the boy eats. Um, when a girl has her first period, she is isolated from the tribe, and the women of the tribe perform a dance where they kind of imitate the movements of female Alon, and a man wearing horns performs the movements of the Alon bull. Uh, this ritual is kind of meant to keep the girl young and beautiful, as well as protect her from hunger and thirst. Um, and part of uh, the marriage rituals for the uh, Sahn groups uh, sees that uh, the groom gives Elan fat to the girl's parents that they can use for, um, well, firstly they anoint the girl with that fat, but they use fat for a number of things, um, protection from uh, you know, sun and cuts and scrapes. The fat has a large variety of purposes that they use it for. Um, but this is specifically given to the bride's parents. Um, now, marriages are typically arranged by parents when the children are young, uh, but they're not consummated until later. Um, the men are typically older, though, just due to, you know, group sizes and demographics. Their age disparity isn't always that large. Um, I mentioned that documentary I watched. Um, it had a, a woman named Nye marry a uh, man named Gunda. Uh, she was eight, he was 13. Now they did not live together for five years. And even then, after they moved in together, they still did not consummate the marriage for some, you know, another couple of years after that. Um, and uh, in fact, while he while this was happening after they had initially moved in together after those five years, um, Gunda, the husband, was he was kind of doing a type of hunting service for her her family. Um, you know, he would try to hunt. I think specific animals uh, that they kind of preferred. I guess it's kind of like a almost like a almost an indentured servitude or just kind of. Um, it's doing that to kind of just show that, yeah, your daughter's in good hands and, you know, I'm now a man and this, you know, this thing can kind of go forward. Um, although that's a very interesting story. Uh, and I do recommend people watch that documentary. It has some very interesting aspects. It's shot over 30 years and uh, unfortunately it does deal with the modern sand and, you know, their problems with... Uh, colonization and decolonization uh, so yeah just keep that in mind so it's not exactly what we're dealing with here but um, another ritual that does involve the Elan directly um, but is kind of the primary concern of the ritual are the various forms of like spirit summoning or calling dances in which the Elan spirit is kind of invoked in the hopes of giving uh, the participants the Elan's powers and strength um, or of drawing 
an actual lawn to their next hunt. <sighs> Excuse me. Now, the Son are also a gift-giving society. Uh, this is meant to build bonds between the extended family and neighbor groups, and it's kind of typically done seasonally and reciprocally. Um, when a gift is given during a meeting, perhaps in the winter, when smaller bands group together, uh, the receiver will return the gesture at the next meeting, or maybe the meeting after. Um, so gifts do not have to be utilitarian in nature, but they usually are. The son are very utilitarian people. Um, but you may also find um, ostrich eggs sh or shell jewelry gifted as well. Um, so they have private ownership of material goods. Uh, and they do recognize land and water ownership, but on a tribal basis or a family familial basis. Now, that is again modern San. If it is the case that 8000 BC is a matter for debate. Uh, they may have developed the concept of a tribal hunting ground after interacting with pastoral or agricultural groups later. After they kind of, you know, maybe those groups uh, said, no, this is our land, you can't be here. So they may have uh, kind of developed that from later interactions. Again, we don't know. But whatever the exact case, uh, defending these rights has become more and more difficult as time has advanced. Um, now this is probably a good time for us to jump ahead and get to some philosophical debates. Um, now I used in our bow and arrow a quote from, I think it was Michael Solins about um, you know, the bow and arrow being basically all a hunter-gatherer needed to ensure his health. Um, and that comes from an anthropological study he did of the San peoples in the 1960s, and it was called Man the Hunter. In that lecture and series, he put forward the idea that the San were the kind of the original affluent society. They had all their needs met, and still had massive amounts of time available for leisurely pursuits. In that study, uh, it was estimated the sun only worked around 20 to 30 hours a week, and the rest of the time they just head off to sing, dance, do whatever. Now that was recalculated after you know a lot of people pushed back on this because they pointed out it didn't include things like cleaning or just general kind of maintenance stuff. Uh, so this raised their work to around 40 hours a week. And the thesis of this work is essentially that by not desiring more than food and water and working solely toward the meeting of these needs, the San as a whole were as wealthy as any people in the world with more leisure time than any other group. Uh, this of course strikes a chord for a number of reasons. Um, if people are concerned about over-exploitation of resources, uh, they can kind of see the sand as beacons of living and balance with their environment. Uh, communists, socialists uh, see their kind of egalitarian society as proof that such a thing is possible for humanity as a whole, um, whereas traditionalists might see a society with clearly defined male and female gender roles centered around the nuclear and extended family as being, you know, very desirable. 
and those of a more libertarian bent could see them as being free from the confines of overreaching and overbearing bureaucracy and government. Uh, so they serve as a cipher, uh, excuse me, as a cipher or echo of what was and what could be a way forward from the quagmire of our modern world. Though uh, I think how people view the sign is more telling uh, of them than anything else. Uh, for all the romanticism and idolization of their lifestyle, by some it is important to remember that for any of these points that uh, people admire about them, they all have their downsides. All of their immense knowledge of the local environment was obtained via trial and error over thousands of years and at the cost of an unknown number of their uh, families in their lives. And for all that knowledge that they have of their environments, they're still at the mercy of forces outside that environment that they have little to no uh, knowledge of. Um, you know, climate change and not just man-made stuff, they were affected by climate change, you know, well before man began affecting it, you know. Uh, and then it, there's just natural... Uh, shifting of climates that we've already discussed several times uh, before that. So, um, their egalitarian society works in their small related bands, but it is always under internal pressure, pressures and external ones. Um, so, you know, it, you can't get too large because, you know, eventually you. Yeah, if you get too large, you do have to work harder at a certain point because the land has a certain carrying capacity, and you know, without specifically cultivating or things like that, you're you know, your groups are basically breaking up. That's why their bands are so small. They break up regularly every time the population doubles, however long that takes. They they have to break up and break apart, and you know, we we'll get into this a little bit more later, but tribal and, uh, you know, confederations and groups, they tend not to last quite as long as we might expect. Generally speaking, I think you'll see groups last for maybe two to four hundred years at most, uh, and then they'll break apart, and then they'll mix with some other, you know, semi-related groups, and they'll reconform and reconfigure into a different um, confederation. Uh, we're especially going to see that in parts of North America and in uh, the Asian steppe, uh, specifically things like the Mongols and the um, the Khitan and um, the uh, the Huns and things like that. Uh, so, and when those breakups happen, they are not always, you know, reasonable, dis reasonably discussed. There is usually bloodshed or violence that precipitates and arises from them. Um, and though, uh, you know, though the family is central to song groups, they have to deal with brutal mortality rates for women and children. Uh, so, you know, you, you know, it's, it's all well and good if everything goes well, but, you know, if, if it's not going well, it would be terrible. And it, I, I can't imagine the emotional, you know, the emotional stress that that has to do. So, uh, finally, for all their freedoms, uh, their groups, you know, they have been crushed and oppressed 
by outsiders for thousands of years. So they're very free. They don't have to deal with, you know, their own governments keeping them down, but they do have to deal with other groups doing that to them, groups that are more organized. So anyone who seeks to idolize these, idolize these people and their way of life should keep in mind that these societies only exist as they do because of a balance between you know, those various aspects of their lifestyle uh, being integrated together. If you remove or change one pillar too quickly or too radically, then it will cause um, the others and the sand themselves to change or collapse. Um, now one day in the far future we will get into the modern sand in greater detail and the challenges and struggles that they face but for now just think of these people as they are. They're the greatest and longest lasting of the hunter-gatherers and are the oldest independent branch of mankind. Now I would love to give you a deep dive into the Koi peoples, uh, just as I did for the sand. But that's difficult, because the ancestors of the Koi peoples that are living today did not keep their hunter-gatherer lifestyle that they had at uh, 8000 BCE. Instead, they will adapt to pastoralism and the keeping of herds. Um, when we get to that time frame, I will be able to dive into much more detail of these peoples. For now, though, I feel confident that their demographics at least uh, are similar to the sun in terms of group sizes and things like that. Um, they are also um, have little interactions with other branches of the human tree just yet, though I think by the next time we jump forward, that will have changed. And just remember that their language is different to the San, despite that they both use shared click consonants and that um, and they also have their own religious traditions. Um, they have their own art, which is probably an offshoot of the religious factor. So um, they have their they also have their own tool making processes. It's not radically different, but it is it is different. Um, the Iberian culture that I mentioned at the start of this episode probably could have been a Koi group. Um, the more northern groups were um, where this was located, which is in, um, I believe, um, uh, Lake Nakuru, which is in, I want to say it's in Kenya. Um, the the Iberian culture, if they were Koi, were some of the more northerly groups. And they were dealing with more the more noticeable climate changes in this part of Africa. And it's nothing terrible. From around 8,000 to about 6,000 BCE, um, it would have been wetter and more humid. Um, but it would still be fertile and filled with more plants and animals. Um, now, after that 6,000 BCE uh, time frame, uh, we see kind of an period of uneven precipitation and then dry spells before a long dry period that starts at around 3000 BC, BCE, uh, which we are still in today. Um, though it should be noted that the, the area is still fertile. Uh, Lake Nakuru, uh, which is near the Eberon Rock Shelter, 
draws um, you know, huge block, uh, flocks of birds uh, and a lot of different types of game. Things like flamingos, warthogs, you know, those kind of uh, animals. Um, but it, despite its fertility and it's still got very, a large amount of green and things like that around, it has seen periods where the water level drops. Um, but this is cyclical. It's not doesn't seem to be related too much to kind of like the broader climate change that you know whatever is going on in the world today. Um, I think the water's got to got to be very low in the 1990s, but by 2013 the levels had returned to as high as they ever been, and in fact uh, they even had. Uh, flooding so bad in the area that has increased the um, the surface area of the lake by around 20 square uh, 20 square uh, 20 square kilometers which you know I think is the largest that lake has ever been um, with the maybe the exception when it was you know if it had like an ocean over it or something like that so uh, it wouldn't surprise me that the climatic shift that happens at around the 6,000 BC mark is kind of what led them to becoming herders uh, in the north at least and then maybe they were so good and it was such a you know easy transition from you know herders to or from hunter-gatherers to herders um, you know it may not even have been a dramatic change it could have been something that just slowly hey, we've got these animals we're keeping, we're still hunting, we're still gathering. And then as time went on, they just, you know, their flocks just increased. It was way easier just to worry about, you know, keeping their own animals and then just maybe hunting for leisure or for perhaps training in war. And then, you know, you just do your standard uh, gathering uh, for just keeping a more balanced diet. So it it's, may not even be that radical of a change so but uh, I think that is kind of a good place to start or to stop for now um, I was very happy once I actually outlined this episode that I did have enough to kind of talk about the south of Africa on its own I was worried I was going to have to cram in South Africa and then like Central Africa to try to you know get a decent length episode but I uh, think we'll we'll be able to do uh, the continent justice at this time and kind of get a little bit more um, descriptions of people you know uh, for uh, for the next few episodes uh, of Africa um, now next week we are going to start on uh, Central Africa, uh, the uh, pygmy peoples, um, and probably might include some of the um, West African groups as well. Um, there's probably going to start be interact uh, interactions between these groups uh, towards the end of our time frame, 6000 BC. I have to double check my notes on that though. Um, but uh, regardless, we'll we'll at least start with Central Africa. That may be a two-parter. I don't know. Uh, I'm still kind of deciding what to include. What I can firmly back up is in this time frame, uh, and what isn't. So, 
Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please uh, like or subscribe or all that good jazz on whatever platform you're listening to me on. Um, I have been continuing to upload some of my episodes to YouTube. Um, and again, we're still backlogged on that. Uh, I've only got the first, I think, maybe 10 or 12 episodes up. I'm, I'm still going through and just uploading them kind of piecemeal. Um, but, of course, you can listen to me wherever you have been listening to me so far. And I just want to thank everyone. It's been a you know busy three months. Um, I've almost uh, well, I have I think at this point broken 600 uh, downloads, um, which is I think incredible for what I have, what I started with. Um, just this small little, just kind of podcast I wanted to put out there. So I'd like to thank everyone. I uh, hope to finish strong. Maybe. Maybe I can uh, break a thousand before the end of the year, but we'll see. But yeah, if you have any feedback or questions, um, I think you can reach me at the. Uh, I think there's a way to contact the creator on most of the places I upload to, but you can reach me via direct message at my Twitter account, uh, which I will include a link in the description of this episode. And you can also reach me at my email, which is waradrevpod at gmail.com. And uh, yeah. I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, please give me any constructive criticism you may uh, have for me. Or if you have any questions or want me to cover anything specifically in detail in later episodes, yeah, let me know. But uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a good day. Goodbye.